Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by Studio, who is applying Swedish design to audio technology to produce superior headphones for a superior listening experience. Studio has many choices available on their website. I myself have the Vasa. This is my first experience with wireless, Bluetooth-enabled earphones, which I've really been won over by. There's no more getting my wires snagged trying to make my way through a busy commuter train in the morning. And on top of that, they deliver an almost-like-being-there audio experience. These earphones also have excellent battery life, up to 8 hours, or 10 days if you put them on standby mode, which is really more than any reasonable person can ask for. I highly recommend them. And just in time for Christmas, the good people of Studio have set me up with an affiliate link, which means if you enter www.studiosweden.com forward slash American into your browser, you can receive a 15% discount off the retail price of the VASA or any set of headphones you choose. And to boot, they'll even send me a few bucks for referring you. So help support American Biography while doing yourself a favor and visit www.studiosweden.com forward slash American today. Hello and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is The Life of John Marshall, Episode 26, John Marshall, Slave Master. Friends, today I have a very special episode for you, and an important one. A person might think that new revelations about a historically important and well-studied life, such as John Marshall's, is not possible, but they'd be wrong. In this episode, we're going to explore a major, recent discovery about the great Chief Justice, which affords me the opportunity to correct the manner in which I've portrayed Marshall up to this point. But let me explain a bit more and do some table setting. Over the course of several years and 25 episodes, I've read Marshall biographies from the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. I have read dozens of scholarly articles and scores of letters and legal opinions. I have attempted to distill these into a podcast that is both comprehensive and digestible, and from these sources I was confident that I had developed an accurate conception of John Marshall the man, warts and all, which I then transmitted to you. 
or so I thought. During the course of writing episode 25, I was for the first time really struck by just how wealthy Marshall was. In earlier episodes, I talked about the Fairfax purchase at some length, so obviously I was aware that he owned a massive amount of land, but as he made his home in Richmond and did not appear to be a farmer in the way of Jefferson or Washington, I never really considered what was going on with those lands while Marshall was pursuing his political and legal career. I assumed they were sitting fallow, until he began handing out plantations to his sons as wedding gifts. So these lands were clearly under some level of cultivation and generating some kind of income for him, even if just through rent collection. But this wasn't the point of episode 25, so I made a mental note and I moved on. I was specifically searching for the location of the land that Marshall gifted to Edward, his youngest son, when I randomly checked into John Marshall's Wikipedia page. Now, I don't use Wikipedia as a main source, but it is often a helpful starting place. But while scanning it, I noticed something I hadn't seen before. The entry for slavery had been updated, and it said something that was, up to that moment, inconceivable. It said recent research demonstrated that John Marshall owned hundreds of slaves. Now, it's routinely reported that Marshall only owned a dozen or so domestic slaves at any given time. Every source says so. Every single one. So a claim like this could very much just be one of the quirks of Wikipedia, as it seemed too preposterous to be taken at face value. But this was linked to a source. In fact, it was linked to a 2017 lecture by a professor named Paul Finkelman. I didn't have time to watch it right then, so I emailed that link to myself and continued collecting the information I needed to finish and publish episode 25. I finally had a chance to watch the lecture several days later, and what it laid out staggered me. In it, Dr. Finkelman methodically walked through his findings. His methodology was sound. The documents he cited weren't classified or obscured, but largely hiding in plain sight. He was using census data and various revisions of Marshall's wills, which had been published, to reveal that Justice Marshall, who supposedly hated slavery, in actuality aggressively bought and sold slaves throughout his life and somehow biographers and historians had either missed it or ignored it. By the end of the lecture, my stomach was in my throat. I had felt like I had been complicit in perpetuating a lie, and I was overcome with a sense that I needed to atone for that complicity. But before I could move forward, I needed to know more about who Dr. Finkelman was. It turns out there's hardly a more qualified individual alive than Paul Finkelman to have cracked this nut. He earned his Ph.D. in 1976 at the University of Chicago and was a fellow in Law and Humanities at Harvard Law School from 1982 to 1983, or as I like to call it, my first year alive. Dr. Finkelman is considered a foremost expert in constitutional law, American legal history, African-American history, the American Civil War, and the First Amendment. He has held a number of endowed chairs as a tenured professor or as a visiting professor including the Ariel F. Salos Chair in Human Rights Law at the University of Saskatchewan, the John Hope Franklin Chair in American Legal History at Duke Law School, and the Chapman Chair at the University of Tulsa Law School. In 2014, he took emeritus status at Albany Law School, where he was the President William McKinley Distinguished Professor. Dr. Finkelman's work has been cited in four decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court and in numerous other courts, 
and in 2014 he was ranked as the fifth most cited legal historian in American legal scholarship. He is currently finishing his tenure as Fulbright Chair in Human Rights and Social Justice at the University of Ottawa School of Law. And in 2017, he was also the John E. Murray Visiting Professor at the University of Pittsburgh Law School and has most recently been appointed President of Gratz College in Pennsylvania. Dr. Finkelman is the author of more than 200 scholarly articles and the author or editor of more than 50 books. His forthcoming book, Supreme Injustice, Slavery in the Nation's Highest Court, will be published by Harvard University Press in 2018. And it was while researching this book that he made his discoveries about Marshall. In Supreme Injustice, Dr. Finkelman chronicles the three most important Supreme Court justices before the Civil War. That's Chief Justices John Marshall and Roger B. Taney, and Associate Justice Joseph Story, all of whose rulings, he demonstrates, helped to uphold the institution of slavery and provided legal rationales to deny black freedom. More than satisfied, I emailed Dr. Finkelman, not really expecting a response, but to my surprise, by day's end, he replied. After a brief correspondence and a preliminary call, he graciously agreed to join me on American Biography and help straighten out John Marshall's record on slavery, and to tell us why that matters. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Paul Finkelman. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a delight to be here. Thank you very much. My listeners and I are truly lucky to have such a distinguished scholar on the program to talk about some really, and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say, profound findings that you've unearthed concerning John Marshall that are going to be published in your forthcoming book, Supreme Injustice. I'm particularly grateful for you coming on the podcast today. Because up until this point, I have reported on Marshall in the manner which he has been universally portrayed. And that is, as a Southerner, who though he disapproved of the institution of slavery, was a reluctant participant, limiting himself to only about a dozen or so domestic slaves, and seemed to try to balance that with his support of federally funded emancipation schemes, which compensated owners and by serving as the first president of the Virginia chapter of the American Colonization Society. Now, as I said, this was nearly the universal opinion, but I'd like to invite you to tell us what you've uncovered about John Marshall. Well, the first thing I have to say is that virtually everything you just said is not true, except that he was the president of the Virginia branch of the American Colonization Society. Right. So let me start with this. If you pick up the biographies of John Marshall, which I'm sure you've read, and many of them are excellent on many aspects of Marshall's life, you will read that he owned a dozen house servants in Richmond. Right. That he had a small number of either house servants or slaves in Richmond. That he was not involved in slavery as a business or as an institution, uh, but merely as an urban slave owner who had servants. Um, you will also read that he didn't like slavery uh, and that he wanted to free one of his own slaves in his will. So these are the things that you'll read about. Um, I thought that when I started my book, my book, Supreme Injustice on the uh, Supreme Court and Slavery, focuses on the three major justices in the 19th century, 
uh, leading up to the Civil War, um, John Marshall, Joseph Story, and Roger B. Taney. And my first draft of the Marshall chapter basically said what I've just said, what you said on, uh, in introducing me. Then I actually read his will. And his will is fascinating because he wrote it three times. So we get to um, see him changing over time. And that's always interesting and useful. And the first thing I noticed in his will is he says, I leave the following slaves to my wife uh, in Richmond. And he lists slaves. He actually lists 15. And he also lists the unnamed slaves of one of his, uh, the unnamed children of one of his slave women. So maybe he was had 18 slaves instead of a dozen. That's not a big deal. That's not earth shattering. Uh, it is worth understanding that owning 18 slaves made John Marshall just from that alone an extraordinarily wealthy man. 18 slaves was a huge amount of, of investment, a huge amount of money. But the other piece of this is that uh, 18 slaves or, or 15 slaves in an urban setting was an, an astounding number of slaves. I mean, I mean you, you, you would have been tripping over slaves in the Marshall household every time you turned around. But following this, there are a series of other provisions in the will. One of them says that I give to my nephew, Thomas Ambler, a, um, my plantation at Chickahominy. Chickahominy is today suburban uh, Richmond, Virginia. And the, the will says I give to him the land, the buildings, the animals, the farm equipment, and the slaves. And so I read this and I think, well, in southern terms, a plantation is always 20 slaves at least. And he talks about my plantation at Chicago. And I realized that right away there must be more than a dozen because he's giving these slaves away at Chicago. Right. A couple of clauses later, he says, I give the land that my son Edward lives on. And this is out in, in sort of western Virginia uh, on, on the way to the Appalachian Mountains. I give my land to my son Edward with the equipment, animals, buildings, and usual number of slaves. And I'm wondering, well, what are the usual number of slaves? Then he has a clause about his son, John Jr., and he says, I was going to give all this to my son, John Jr., but because of financial embarrassments, instead he's setting up a trust uh, for the benefit of John Jr.'s wife and children, which, of course, were John Marshall's grandchildren. So... So I'm reading through all this and I'm, I'm reaching the conclusion there must be far more slaves than in Dudson and Richmond. And after some very quick uh, looks into the U.S. Census, we discover that according to the 1830 Census, there are at least 62 slaves at Chickahominy. Wow. That um, his son Edward in 1830 owns 27 slaves that there are more than 30 slaves on the plantation where his son John Jr. lives. And there are scattered other land holdings for John Marshall out in Fauquier County and in other parts of Virginia. And very quickly, the numbers begin to approach 150. Uh, now, when he rewrites his will the second time, he says that I give the land to my son Edward the slaves having already been conveyed. So what we discover is that in 1830, Edward has 27 slaves. These are the slaves that have already been conveyed. By the way, Edward's 25 years old. Yes. 
it is not possible to imagine that Edward could have purchased these slaves on his own. Uh, he's a young man starting out in life, uh, you know, unless he has a million dollar trust fund. Uh, you know, in our dollars, he's not buying 27 slaves. These are the gifts of his father. And when you begin to look at the entire holdings of John Marshall, you reach the conclusion that at the time of his death, he owns very close to 150 slaves in the countryside in Enrico County, Enrico County which is uh, suburban Richmond, where the Chickahominy Plantation is, and in Richmond itself, and that he's already given 27 slaves to his son. We also discover that he has another son who doesn't appear in any census records until 1820, when, as a relatively young man, he owns 40 Samad slaves. And the only assumption must be that these 40 or so slaves, slightly more than 40 slaves, were a gift of John Marshall and perhaps the son's father-in-law as well, because the son uh, is recently married. This is uh, Dr. Jacqueline Marshall. He's a, he's a physician. Mm -hmm. So if you begin to add all these slaves up, and then you look at Marshall's older sons, who have substantial slaves of their own by 1820 and by the 1830 census, you reach the conclusion that over his life, John Marshall must have bought hundreds of slaves. And what's fascinating is, is that Marshall did not inherit these slaves. His father uh, was a small planter, owned uh, somewhere between 20 and 30 slaves when, when John Marshall mm -hmm. got married and went out on his own. Marshall got one slave as a wedding present. That's exactly right. And yeah. later his father gave him a couple of more. But Marshall's slave owning is from purchasing. What's fascinating is no biographer of John Marshall has ever seemed to notice this. So one biographer after another writes about Marshall, and they only get through the first clause of the will, the dozen or so slaves in Richmond. And they don't read the rest of the will. They don't look at it. They don't analyze it. They don't think about it. In the published John Marshall papers, we have record books of his economic activities from the um, 1780s, sort of after the revolution, up to the mid-1790s when he goes off to France to be a diplomat. Mm -hmm. And in this period alone, he purchases at least 17 slaves, maybe more. This is an extraordinary number of slaves for somebody who is just starting out in life, living in a city where you don't need lots and lots of slaves, so we, when we look at the business records in the, in, the, in the 1780s, we see a man who is aggressively buying slaves. And, and this, this is just fascinating. So that uh, we find in October 1783, Marshall bought a slave named Moses for 73 pounds. And he also notes that he bought shoes for Hannah, although we don't know when he acquired Hannah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he bought, on July 1st, 1784, he spends 90 pounds for Ben. Three days later, which is July 4th, ironically, it's the first anniversary of the signing of the Declaration since the Treaty of Paris made the nation an independent nation. He buys two slaves uh, for 30 pounds. These are probably children named Eddie and Harry. Uh, and he also pays 20 pounds more in part for two other servants, as he calls them, but they're, they're clearly slaves. 
in September, he puts down 25 pounds for another servant. And what's fascinating when we, when we go through this is that sometimes he gives us names. So he says he bought Ben, he bought Moses. But other times he's just buying unnamed slaves and servants. Uh, in November, he buys two slaves, Kate and Esau. And in uh, September, in 1784, he also at some point bought Harry, but he does not tell us what the purchase price is. In a 12-month period from 1783 to October 1783 to 1784, John Marshall, a relatively young man, just starting out in life, has purchased nine slaves. Yeah. This, is, this is an enormous investment yeah. in human beings. Uh, and this continues. Yeah. His law practice at that point hasn't taken off to the extent that it will later in the decade. Yes. So yeah, that's a lot of money to put down. That's right. And, and he keeps going. By seventeen, uh, uh, by seventeen eighty-five, he owns the Oak Hill Farm in Faulkner County, where his, where, which his father had deeded to him, and he begins to populate that with slaves. Uh, in November seventeen eighty-six, he pays fifty pounds for two slaves. April seventeen eighty-seven, he buys Israel for fifty-five pounds. In May, he says he bought a woman. In Gloucester, doesn't say how old she is or whether she has a name. Uh, in June, he pays 11 pounds uh, as a down payment on two more slaves. And he pays for the burial of the slave, Sam, uh, but doesn't say when he bought, slave, bought Sam. On July 4th, 1787, again, the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, at a time when in Philadelphia, the uh, founders are writing the Constitution of the United States. He buys a woman and a child, and uh, he also pays money he owed on another slave. So he's keeping meticulous records of all of these purchases. And again, what's fascinating is sometimes he names them, but the record books talk about I bought a woman, a Negro man, two slaves, bought clothes for Negroes, bought sundries at Mr. Drinkles for Negroes, bought shoes for Negroes, bought a Negro woman. This is his, 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 the diary of what he spends his money on, his financial records. It's littered with purchasing slaves and purchases of slaves. Perhaps emblematic of this is in June 1790, he pays 130 pounds, a significant amount of money, for mm -hmm. Dick and others. So Dick is significant enough to be named, the others are not. And between 1789 and 1790, Marshall buys six slaves. Um, this is just an enormous investment in human beings. And what's fascinating is that nobody has ever noticed this. So you might ask, so what? Okay, so John Marshall is, is on his way to being what today would be a multi-multi-millionaire, and he buys slaves. Does that make him any different than any other elite Virginian? And how does that affect our understanding of what we all call the great chief justice? I think that's a legitimate question. Legitimate question. Because so, you look at, if I could just interject for a second. Yeah. Because um, now you're looking at someone who's owned several hundred slaves over the course of his lifetime, mm -hmm. which isn't significantly different from his his you know, distant cousin, Thomas Jefferson, who, uh, you know, I think they estimate own around 600 slaves over the course of his life. And 
John Marshall for almost 200 years has been coasting on this entirely unearned reputation. Usually this is, I've seen this used as a reason why he was better than Jefferson often That's as right. well. That's right. And, and so one thing to think about is this, the defenders of Thomas Jefferson, correctly or incorrectly, would tell you Jefferson inherited these slaves and whether he liked slavery or not, he didn't know what to do with them. Uh, we, I could critique that. I've written a lot on Thomas Jefferson. I have a uh, book, if I can make the, um, you know, the shameless plug called Slavery and the Founders, where I talk a great deal mm -hmm. about Jefferson and slavery. But certainly what you see in Thomas Jefferson is a man who is not aggressively increasing the number of his slaves. Marshall is. Marshall's out there buying. But there's more than just this, because um, what we see in Marshall is a man who hears many, many cases involving slavery. And this is the other piece of the great chief justice. That is, if you read his biographers, they say little or nothing about how slavery impacts his jurisprudence. There is a set of books known as the Oliver Wendell Holmes Divides History of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. These books were written uh, with money that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes left to the United States government. The United States government took the money and appointed a commission to hire scholars to write kind of definitive massive histories of the court. The Marshall Court gets two volumes. So it's the Marshall Court from 1800 to 1815 and then from 1815 until uh, Marshall leaves the court in 1835 when he dies. In the first volume, the word slave does not appear in the index. None of the slave cases that Marshall hears are analyzed. Hmm. None of the cases involving the African slave trade are analyzed or discussed or mentioned. But Marshall hears a significant number of cases involving both the African slave trade and suits by blacks who claim to be free. I want to summarize the research. I don't want to get into kind of details here. Sure. The summary is this. While Marshall is Chief Justice, he hears 14 cases on that are that are that are freedom suits based on slaves who claim to have a um, a legitimate claim to freedom. One biographer of Marshall says he heard, quote, relatively few freedom suits. But I would say relatively is clearly a relative term. Absolutely. Uh, relative, 14 freedom suits is more than one every three years. Given how limited the Supreme Court's jurisdiction is, given how hard it is to get a case to the Supreme Court, one might conclude that 14 freedom suits is actually a huge number of cases for slaves somehow getting the right to have their freedom tested by the Supreme Court. But here's where the bottom line becomes important. Between 1806 and 1830, Marshall decides seven cases in which the freedom of the slaves is at issue. In every single one of the cases, the slaves lose. In a number of the cases, the slaves had actually won in a jury trial. That is a jury of 12 white men, usually in Washington, D.C., because see, 
the Supreme Court of the U.S. is also the Supreme Court for Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. as though it were uh, a state Supreme Court. Right. Okay? So most of these are cases that come out of Washington, D.C., in which a jury of 12 white men, some of whom would have been slaveholders, presided over by a federal judge who was a slaveholder, have concluded that a black is free. And yet, Marshall overturns every one of these cases uh, and concludes that no, none of these slaves have a right to be free. This is, an, this is an astounding record. Of the other seven cases, because there were 14, one of them is decided by Justice Johnson of South Carolina, and the, and the slave also loses. The other cases are decided by other justices, and the slaves all win. Let me illustrate one of these. Sure. In one case, Marshall writes that the statute under which the slave is claiming to be free is certainly ambiguous. I'm quoting now. It's certainly ambiguous. And the one construction or the other may be admitted without great violence to the words which are employed. Okay? Mm -hmm. So here you have a statute which Marshall says is ambiguous. Now, one would think that the great chief justice would have decided the ambiguity in favor of freedom. Yeah. Marshall always calls himself a child of the revolution. He believes in natural rights. His biographers always talk about how he believes in natural rights. But when it comes to slaves, the ambiguity is decided in favor of the uh, owner, not of the slave. That's curious, right? You'd have to wonder if there is – I don't you know, want to accuse him, but maybe I should. Is there a motivation there because of his vested financial interest? Well, that would be that would be how I would read it. There are a couple of very interesting cases involving these blacks who claim to be free. Under the the District of Columbia was a weird place in the early nineteenth century. Half of it had come from Washington D.C. and was known as Alexandria County, and then after the at the end of the eighteen forties, it was given back to. Virginia. So Alexandria used to be part of Virginia, and then became uh, then became Washington D.C., and then went back to being Virginia. The other part, which is today Washington D.C., had originally been part of Maryland, and so it's governed by Maryland law. So there's one case where a slave is born in Maryland to a woman who's allegedly a slave, and therefore this person is going to be a slave. And he is sold to somebody who takes him to what it becomes Washington, D.C. Some years later, this slave's mother wins a lawsuit in Maryland and is declared to be free. The Maryland court says that she was never a slave, not that she got her freedom through some circumstance during life, but at no point in her life was she ever a slave. Therefore, under Maryland law, her son, a man named John Davis, is entitled to be free because his mother, Susan Davis, was always a free person. 
And so John Davis goes into a District of Columbia court, and the jury immediately rules John Davis is free because his mother was never a slave. And and he's essentially a, a, a free person who was stolen and made into a slave. Marshall overturns this result. And Marshall overturns this result on the grounds that the person who owned John Davis is not bound by the decision in Maryland that John Davis's mother was also free. During the oral arguments, one of the justices, a man named Gabriel Duval, who had been the chief justice of Maryland, goes to great lengths to assert in, in the court and oral argument, during the oral arguments, that in Maryland, it is always the case that if your mother is proven to have always been free, the only thing you have to prove is dissent. You don't have to prove anything else. You just have to prove that this is your mother and you are free because you've never been a slave. This is the rule, in fact, in every single slave state in the United States. If this case had been litigated in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, Tennessee, it would have been the same result. John Davis goes free. But Marshall, uh, who dominates the court at this time, says no, he doesn't go free because he, because his owner has no relationship to the suit of Maryland. Uh, this is a, a, a fairly shocking case. That's incredible. A, a couple of years later, there's a more famous case called Me McQueen. And the reason Me McQueen is famous is because in that case, the same Maryland jurist, Gabriel Duval, writes a stinging dissent in which he says that Marshall is violating all of the rules of Maryland procedure so that Mima Queen is not given the opportunity to sue for her freedom. And he basically says in Maryland, this case would go forward. And since the District of Columbia is governed by Maryland law, the case should go forward. So in every time that Marshall hears a freedom case, he somehow finds a reason not to give freedom to the slave. And there is, I don't want to go into the details of court analysis because it's going to bore your listeners. And you got to give them a reason to buy the book, Paul. All the more reason to buy my book, absolutely. Uh, but, but, but basically what we see is in one case, Marshall says, um, we're going to follow this rule, and the slave loses. In another case, he, he, he rejects that rule and follows a different rule, and the slave loses. The only thing that's consistent is the slave loses, the owner wins. The same is true in African slave trade cases. Marshall never decides an African slave trade case in which somebody who illegal, illegally brought slaves into the United States is punished in any way. He consistently upholds claims to slaves, even when there are clear precedents and legal theory that would allow the court to say these illegally imported slaves go free because that's what American law says. In one case, he says that you cannot declare that the slave trade violates international law. You can't say the slave trade is piracy because the slave trade has existed everywhere. And that only by statute could you say the slave trade is piracy. But curiously, the United States passed exactly that statute, saying that 
that slave slave trading should be considered piracy. Uh, Marshall says you cannot apply natural law to slave trade cases. Two years later, in a bankruptcy case, he goes on and on and on about how natural law must be applied in this case. So when it comes to white people fighting over property, natural law is a really useful tool. But when it comes to whether black people are slaves, natural law doesn't belong in American law. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Professor, I only have you for a few more minutes, so I want to, to bring this idea of the way Marshall steers the court to kind of a, a broader question. So there is this false legacy for John Marshall that floats above everything. Well, so, so let's talk about what the legacy is. Okay. Yes, that would yeah, please. John Marshall is the great chief justice. Okay. John Marshall is the man who makes the Supreme court a co-equal branch the government. John Marshall writes powerful opinions which are still cited today. Of the ten most 
cited Supreme Court decisions that the court itself has decided, five are martial opinions. I mean, this is, you know, pretty astounding. He is a giant. And yet at the same time, when we, when we um, venerate him, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we venerate? And what does that say about the United States as a country? What does it say about us as a, uh, as a society? And what exactly has John Marshall done for us? What is his legacy? And I would say his legacy is very, very tragic. Because here is a man who could have sided with freedom a number of times and goes out of his way to side with slavery. And that's tragic. Because if John Marshall decides in favor of freedom and the influential position that he's in, if he decides to take a freedom tract, that that changes everything. Well, hard to know if it changes everything. What it does do is to alter our history in a sense that we have a series of precedents by the great chief justice saying that if the statute is ambiguous, we should favor freedom. You know, we have a series of, of statutes which say that the United States should be on the side of liberty, not on the side of slavery. I think that's an important legacy for the United States to have had, and I think it's sad that we don't have it. Such a legacy makes it hard to imagine a ruling like Dred Scott being possible by Roger Taney later. Well, it certainly would have been interesting if 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 if, if Tawney had had to overthrow had to overturn Marshall presidents. That's right. I, I mean, for for example, uh, you know, Tawney says in Dred Scott that a free black person cannot be a citizen of the United States, and therefore can't sue in federal court under the provision of the Constitution that allows citizens of one state to sue citizens of another state. But if Marshall had asserted in some of his opinions that our, our citizens who are free are entitled to their freedom, that would have been a different outcome. Now, now what's fascinating is, is that the biographers of Marshall often say, well, he didn't want to rile the South. He didn't want to upset the South. Uh, he was afraid of Southern nationalists. He was afraid of, of proto-secessionists. But the oddity of this is that most of Marshall's slave cases are decided before 1820, and certainly all of them before 1830. And yet, most scholars say that the crisis over slavery begins in either 1820 or 1831. Hmm. And, and so, when Marshall's hearing a case in 1815 involving whether he should strictly apply Maryland law to free a slave, if he'd freed that slave, who's going to complain? The people of Maryland? They're going to say, oh, the federal government shouldn't enforce Maryland law? He hears cases from the Virginia side of the District of Columbia, where the Virginia law dictates that the slaves should be free. And rather than applying the Virginia law, he comes up with some other legal theory, 
So he doesn't have to apply the Virginia law, so the slave can't claim freedom. So it could have been different. It could have been different. It could have been better. Would it have dramatically changed American history? We don't know. Would it have prevented the Civil War? I doubt it. Would it have, been, would it have led to an end to slavery? Probably not. But it would have meant that some slaves would have been free. That some people who were kidnapped in Africa and brought to the United States would have become free instead of being held as slaves in the United States. And that our own legal culture would have had an icon who stood for freedom. Um, after the Nat Turner Rebellion, in Virginia, Marshall goes to the Virginia legislature in his role as the leader of the, of the colonization society, which is dedicated to shipping free black people to Africa. And he asks the Virginia legislature to appropriate money to send blacks back to Africa. And in this petition, he says that most of the free blacks in Virginia are criminals, which is simply not true. And disgusting. And disgusting. And he furthermore says that, that uh, Nat Turner's rebellion wouldn't have taken place, in, implying if we didn't have all these free blacks. But of course, there were no free blacks involved in Turner's rebellion. It was slaves who were rebelling, not free blacks. And then he goes on to say that free blacks are pests, and so black people should never be free. By the way, Thomas Jefferson uses that phrase to oppose emancipating slaves as well. He says they are pests. Well, Professor Finkelman, you've given us a lot to think about today, and I know that you have a meeting coming up, so I do want to let you go with our grateful thanks for this investigation you've done. And uh, I want to encourage my listeners to look to January when Supreme Injustice uh, hits the shelves. I shamelessly, I believe you can pre-order it on Amazon. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, and I, I should add, uh, some people may know my work. Um, they will not know that I have just accepted the presidency of a small college in Greater Philadelphia, Gratz College. So uh, I am now uh, the president of Gratz College, uh, but I will continue to be a scholar and continue to write on these subjects. That's wonderful. To, to all of our edification. Thank you. Well, thank you again, sir, and, and have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was my discussion with Professor Finkelman. I'd like to again thank him profusely for taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk with me and share his insights from the front lines of scholarly research. Before we wrap up, I just want to share some final thoughts, because I think there's a lesson to be learned here, not just as students of history, but as consumers of information. John Adams famously said, facts are stubborn things. And as far back as Shakespeare it's been noted that truth will out, meaning that truth will inevitably come out and can't be hidden forever. I don't have a good explanation for why scholars have missed such obvious instruments 
like wills, census records, and collected letters. As these are considered basic tools for the historian, and reviewing these are part of one's due diligence if you're setting out to do original research. Now, I don't seek to absolve myself when I say that I'm not doing original research per se with this podcast, and therefore I don't believe I'm a historian in the proper sense of the term. I have an undergraduate degree in history, and I am a knowledgeable and conscientious autodidact that's trying to present the most accurate historical consensus the field has to offer for a general audience and I make a good-faith attempt to get my hands on as many primary sources as possible. But there are time and financial limits to what a layman can access, and this long-held blind spot concerning Marshall is a cautionary tale, because folks like me and history enthusiasts around the world are so heavily reliant on secondary sources and trust the likes of Albert Beveridge, Gene Smith, and other biographers to dig deeper than we can. This is not to say that we should not trust scholars or journalists or institutions, but it is to say we shouldn't abdicate our responsibility to be skeptical consumers of information without becoming cynical in the process. Skepticism is asking the next logical question. It's trusting, but also verifying, and it's being open to evidence, despite belief or opinion. Cynicism, by contrast, is isolating and stifling, and it makes one dismissive of anything which conflicts with our preconceived notions or worldview. Whether it's CNN's reporting, or Howard Zinn's analysis, or the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal, none of us can afford to turn a blind eye to the reality that confronts us just because it might be inconvenient, even if it's John Marshall's legacy or tomorrow's headlines. Because facts are stubborn things, and the truth will out. Okay, everybody, thank you all so much for listening. Agora's Podcaster of the Month is The History of Westeros, where hosts Aziz and Ashea dig deep into the fantastical world created by George R.R. R. Martin, delivering theories and analysis. You can find a link to their show by heading over to agorapodcastnetwork.com or to their website, www.historyofwesteros.com. Also, Please consider signing up to support American Biography by going over to patreon.com forward slash ambio, A-M-B-I-O, and pledging as little as a dollar an episode, or as much as you like, to help keep the podcast going. I thank you for your consideration. Remember, you can follow American Biography on Facebook or on Twitter at American underscore bio, or check out the website at www. AmericanBiography.webs.com. Oh, make sure you check out the show notes on this episode for links to Gratz College and for the pre-order link for Social Injustice. If you need to get a hold of me for any reason, as always, you can send an email to AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, everybody. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>